Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am said Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome to episode one of Breaking the Surface. Uh, We thought we'd start out by kind of looking at the state of the union. Where are we in the country right now? We just had the end of one big sort of political era with the Trump administration going out. We've got a new administration coming in. Uh, There's been a lot that's happened in the last month or so. And so we thought it'd be good to kind of start a conversation about where we are today. And I don't know, Anthony, I'd be curious to get your thoughts about how things have been going the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot happening. Yeah. In some ways it feels quieter. And I think that's because um, President Biden doesn't use Twitter like President Trump did. And there's just not that day-to-day, often 10 times a day kind of thing that is constantly feeding the news with things that are inflammatory. And so it's in some ways it feels to me like there's this season of calm but then I'll be going through my news feed and I'll, I'll go, no, there's a lot of stories happening. I think I've just become so used to the way it was a front and center, constant kind of tense discussion that I it's going to take me some time to get back into the flow of, oh, yeah, there's still changes happening. There's still things to be discussed. It's just it doesn't feel as in the moment. It's just a weird shift for me right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I'm kind of where you're at too, Anthony, where I don't have this feeling of like underlying fear that I had for most of the, of the last few years, which is just like, what will have hit the news cycle by the next time I check it? And not only what current things are happening that should be noted, but in what way have they hit the cycle and in what negative way are they being painted or in what ways are people kind of being sicked on each other? And so I felt like pretty good. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, it just feels as though we kind of have a a real human in office right now. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I'm not going to try to let these sentiments be the only thing I judge Joe Biden on. Um, but he's experienced things that I think we've all experienced, which is like struggle and loss and things that have happened in his personal life. And he seems to be much more willing to discuss and be upfront about those things as opposed to what we had the last few years, which is where there seemed to be a person that was, um, shying away from those conversations because it maybe was seen as weakness. And so it was always being on the offensive, always being on the attack. Uh, Whereas Joe Biden, he seems a little bit more willing to just like let people in. He seems, I don't know, like a normal dude to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about is if the loss of the presidency for Trump would do anything to change him in any way, you know, once it set in. 
And uh, I don't think it will be able to if he always accepts the narrative that he secretly won. Um, but I, I've been always been curious to see, he's only done a little bit of media, you know, since he mm-hmm. left office, he did an appearance on Fox news, I think this week. Um, but he doesn't have access to Twitter, Twitter anymore. He won't ever again. Um, so his channels have kind of changed and, uh, th- that, what you said about Biden Taylor is exactly what I like about Biden. I think there will be plenty to criticize during his administration. I think you could have lots of debates about his policies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do. I have always appreciated his empathy. And I think that does come from having suffered some major losses in his life with some deaths of his family members. Um, and Trump just never had that. He was so insulated from loss, it seemed like, for, for most of his life from suffering. And I feel like suffering is kind of almost a requisite part of the human experience. Mm. And a lot of times the people I've seen who are the kindest and most sympathetic and most in tune to others have had some kind of major loss in their lives. And I always sort of just hope for Trump that maybe he could <laughs> take a little time of reflection after leaving office and let that loss set in. But it I don't know that that's in his character or not. Aren't they already talking about starting another party? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about, actually, is what you think is going to happen from here, because it does feel like the Republican Party is kind of splintering a little bit right now. I, I, go ahead, please. Okay. So I would love to see both the Republican and the Democratic Party branch off mm. or split in a sense. So have, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to use the names of some people who were front and center recently. Have a Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party and a Joe Biden wing or a Hillary Clinton. And then for the Republicans, you've got the Trump wing and then you've got the Rubio. I'm trying to think of someone who would be more of a center. And like a Romney. Like a Mitt Romney. Romney. Yeah, like yeah. a Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. And have four of those. And I'd love to see a branch off. If only one does it, it's going to guarantee that the other party wins for how long? Because it will right. absolutely split the vote. And I think it will be interesting if, if the Trump camp does start a new party what the discussion will be about throwing away your vote. Because if they do and they genuinely siphon, let's say, half the voters, you're just not going to win a national election for a long, long time. So I wonder what they'll do with that. But I I would like to see more parties anyway. I'd like Mm -hmm. to see independent parties rise. I would like to see us have seven parties, at least, that are viable, where people have to build coalitions, kind of similar to what they do in Germany right now. Uh, I would love to see that happen. But I think if only one party does it, I, I don't know. I don't think they'll have the guts to pull the trigger on it. Yeah. I. So right now, it seems like the Republican Party would be leading the way in terms of a conversation about uh, splitting in two or multiple factions. And I have to wonder, as I as I ask myself, like, is that an actual possibility for them? I don't really know, because we're still burning like white hot from this election and movements like that take place like when emotions are high and people are ready to to make drastic changes that they weren't before, maybe when they were more comfortable or whatever. Um, and so maybe as Trump, if he does kind of leave leave the spotlight at all because he doesn't have Twitter to utilize, um, maybe he's not going to be given the same time of day on the major news networks. I think those conversations might peter out. So like if I had to place a bet, I wouldn't think that it was going to split. Hmm. But I think the fact that we're kind of in more advanced talks about it says something still. Yeah. Like there's been a lot of discussion about the possibility of Trump starting his own media network in some capacity, either a a news channel or TV or something like that. I think that is a a real possibility. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and if he does that, then I think he would have a platform um, to, you know, communicate a message that might support the splintering of a party because his his rhetoric has been along those lines. It's been, you know, any Republicans who weren't loyal to him. I mean, you, you can even see it in the way that some of the Republicans who voted for his impeachment have been censored by their party, you know, in their respective GOP states. Um, so I what I thought, Taylor, is it might be like embers. And I just feel like those embers might smolder and you're right, maybe mm. like calm down. But I think they're going to always be there ready to be stirred back up because there are so many people who genuinely feel that they had an election stolen from mm. them. And I think it will be easy to stir that rage right back up if if he wanted to or yeah. if someone wanted to. OK, I, I might be flip flopping. Yeah, the, <laughs> the embers can go either way. They can they can fizzle out they're right, uh, yeah. or they can be stirred back up. Uh, that's interesting. I'll have to continue to think about that. Do you think there is a contingent of Democrats who are smoldering also about Bernie not being given more, uh, more help, more support? Like they're, they're, they're significantly invested in that, in, in the rise of a Bernie Sanders movement. I think so. I think your idea about like two progressive wings and two centrist wings of the party is makes a lot of sense because that's I think that's part of the reason Hillary Clinton lost the last election was there were a lot of Bernie people who were so outraged and felt like the Democratic Party had specifically maneuvered to steal it away from Bernie and give it to Hillary that they just refused to vote for Hillary. They might have voted third party or not yeah. voted at all. And I think that really hurt her in addition to like the populist movement for Trump. So, yeah, I think there could be what I to be honest, though, going to your point about if only one party does it, then they'll be at a disadvantage. I think that's true. And I think if Democrats were smart, I would love to see multiple parties. But I think if Democrats were smart, they would hold off on doing that um, because the demographics in the country already support a movement towards Democrats. It's, you know, we're increasingly diversified in terms of ethnicities and backgrounds. Um, Republicans are hanging on because of things like gerrymandering and some voter oppression, to be quite honest. Um, but if they if their party splintered the votes, I mean, they've already lost the popular vote in a lot of elections, mm -hmm. but I've, you know, squeaked out an electoral win. If they if that splinters, I mean, and the Dems could really rally around, they might have a very strong advantage over Republicans, mm -hmm. I think. Well, and the other thing that's happening is the migration here in the United States of people leaving more liberal states and moving to conservative states and really starting to have an impact on the voting blocks there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what you guys think we can get right into some real current politics, but like what's happening in Texas right now. Ooh. Yeah. So, I mean, at the time of this recording, uh, Texas has been out of power for several days for millions of people during one of the worst cold spells they've ever uh, had. I remember in the first days of this, a lot of, the, of people in the north were making jokes about it because we're like, oh, we're hardy Michiganders. But truly, the homes in Texas are not built for mm -hmm. this kind of weather. They're not insulated. People don't have water. They don't have electricity. And a big part of this was because there's been, you know, a long history of sort of this independence in GOP leadership there, which has kind of isolated their energy system from the rest of the country. Um, and I'm really curious. There was some flack today for Ted Cruz flew to Mexico <laughs> to go on vacation with his family uh, while all these people are suffering around him. And I just wonder if this major power outage is going to force some Texans to think about infrastructure, leadership, any of those kind of big questions there. I, yeah, I don't know if it's going to force them to think about those types of things. I had seen a outlandish a quote from, I think, the governor of Texas where he said, no, I think that the Texas people are willing to suffer right now uh, so that they don't have to be plugged into this federal infrastructure. 
And I don't know how representative that actually is of people that are quite literally like freezing in their homes. Um, but it's it's interesting because it kind of wasn't it just last year within the last couple of years that Hurricane Harvey hit mm -hmm. and there was all the the flooding and the stuff that happened with that. And so I have a family members that live in Houston and they were fortunate enough after Harvey to say like, yeah, I think we need a generator. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to get a generator. Not everybody is able to operate like that or does operate like that. I think during times of like really strange environmental catastrophes, some people are like, got to be prepped for the next one. And then there might be just as many people who are like, yeah, I think that was probably the one thing I'll have to endure. So I'm probably good. Like, I'm not going to get hit with something else crazy, am I? And so then they're left kind of like in the cold right now. And yeah. I don't know, but I, the Ted Cruz stuff is interesting. It just continues to just these examples of like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> it's really good optics. No, minimum, what are you what are you optics. thinking? You can yeah. go you can go on vacation at any point. I'm sure he has power at his home. So like it's not like they're in the same situation as these people we see with their pipes bursting. And so I would just assume that he his home is probably uh, linked up to a generator of some kind. And here he is just hopping on this plane and going and doing things that the average person can't. It's just bad. It looks bad. And it's just like, I, I, I wonder, I mean, when those things really hit home, when you are without power, when you go to sleep, worrying that you might freeze to death or your family might freeze to death overnight, or you're in a car in a garage mm -hmm. trying to keep your kids warm and, you know, breathing in carbon dioxide. I mean, sometimes those kind of extremes can force people to ask questions like, why did this happen to us? Why are we ever in the state where this would happen? I also wonder about the possibility of people asking questions about climate change. You know, it it's just some of these issues are so politicized and it's easy to think of them only in partisan terms if they're not impacting your day-to-day -day life. It's just like a philo philosophical idea that's out there in the distance. But when it like hits home, sometimes people are more willing to think about it. And I've noticed Democrats pushing, see, this is why we need a Green New Deal. This is the kind mm -hmm. of like infrastructure and climate change things we should be addressing. And I don't know if that message is going to resonate or not, but I would be willing to bet that people would be at least asking questions maybe right now. It did seem like initially like any catastrophe, it seems like people want to make some type of political points off of it. Yeah. So I saw coming from the, you mentioned some things coming from the left. I saw coming from the right, this picture of the wind turbine that was frozen with the <laughs> helicopter thawing it. It turns out it wasn't from Texas. And so a lot of the blame was, I think there was one politician who actually blamed it on the green new deal, which hasn't happened. And then blamed the loss of power on turbines failing, but it wasn't the turbines. It was the gas plants that mm -hmm. were freezing up. And so both of them, within the first day or two, boom, you get this initial wave of stories that translate easily into memes. Well, now I'm starting to see the articles that are doing more of the deep dive. They're breaking the surface nice. uh, uh, into what you're talking about. What's the background of this? This has been decades in the making of policy and very specific decisions and maybe the kind of Texas sense of we want to be our own thing. We'll be big enough and strong enough on our own. But Texas is one of the states that also is having shifting demographics, especially in the cities. And I really do wonder what it's going to look like when Dallas and Houston and Austin start to move left. I could imagine in Texas, there's going to be huge conflict uh, because that has been a, a state that has probably for all of existence been a very conservative state and very, very much desired to be independent of the federal government. And so I don't know. I think the next five to 10 years could be pretty interesting. I did like to that Biden, this is just speaking to what Taylor was talking about in terms of like the change of the day to day life, but that Biden just, you know, quietly issued a declaration of emergency, mm -hmm. lined up some funding. There was no 
well, it's a Republican state, so I guess you're on your own or you brought this on yourself. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that. I have to say just at a personal level, it's a little bittersweet. My you know, partner lost a beautiful historic cabin in the wildfires mm-hmm. in California yeah. and all of the blaming and political language around that saying somehow, you know, Democratic leaders in California should have been sweeping the forest or doing whatever things they were supposed to be doing to prevent what are ultimately climate change driven disasters from happening was so frustrating to live through on a personal level. Um, I never want anyone from any political party to suffer, but it is interesting just to kind of see that change of language of, yeah, maybe we don't have to turn Mm -hmm. everything into some sort of political attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where my mind went too. was these, you know, we're also fresh off these wildfires in California, in California. It must be something about kind of being on the ocean where yes, you're, you're part of the country, but also it kind of feels like you're, I don't know, at this border or something. Mm-hmm. And so California gets that a lot where it's like, yeah, but they're not like, like the rest of us. A lot of Michiganders can point to California and be like, you know, they're not like the rest of us. They're having uh, wildfire issues that we like never see in Michigan. So it's kind of hard to relate. Um, and so then we're, we're being asked like, well, are we going to, what type of help are we going to send there? And sometimes the politicians are using that as ammunition. And so it's just fascinating how People continue to fail to realize like whatever issue you're tamping down right now because it's happening to someone else is just giving people an opportunity to ignore whatever your issue is that might pop up in the next couple of years. I mean, to to tamp down what happened in California as like, you know, that's that's a West Coast problem. Yeah. And then now it's happening like in this state of Texas, like this strong state of Texas and there's things and they need help from outside sources. Um, it's just really strange because I suspect a lot of that rhetoric might've been coming from Texas towards Californians. Well, and, and what I fear is that when rhetoric immediately becomes political, um, and this, in the California case from the right and the Texas case from the left, I, I fear that it can short circuit serious discourse. So for example, could California do something different to manage its forests that would minimize the effects of fire. I, I don't know mm-hmm. I didn't, because it's hard to find a discussion of that <laughs> because it gets off the rails so quickly. Mm-hmm. Can Texas legitimately do things so they don't have to do the blackouts they've been doing, et cetera? I, I wish, and maybe this is already the cat's out of the bag and we're never going to go back, which would pain me, but I would love to, to see um, people's a general term. Maybe it's think tanks or organizations who their first reaction is not to go, how do I score points from this? But it's to go, all right, is there a genuine problem that needs addressing? And what does it look like to address that from a bipartisan or nonpartisan perspective? Have you come across any resources that do that? I mean, even when I see like research or reports or findings from nonpartisan or independent think tanks, I think the challenge is, you know, the minute their reports get released, they then go into the filters of political media mm. or you know yeah. political parties yep. or whatever it is so you're either interpreting the findings to benefit your political beliefs or to criticize someone else's political beliefs it's really difficult i i agree i would love to have those conversations and that's one of the reasons you know i hopefully we have this podcast and can talk about some yeah. of those things but I've always tried, and you know this, Anthony, and we've had so many conversations over the years, but, you know, regardless of my political beliefs are, I've always tried to be fair-minded and critical about whoever's in power. I certainly don't, I'm not like the gung-ho 
100%, you know, Mm -hmm. all the time. And I wish that too, you know, there, I think there probably are things California could do differently. I I certainly think there are things Texas could do differently just based on what's happening in the state right now. But I would love to have those conversations also and not have to have it always be, I'm either completely on the defense or I'm on the attack. Hmm. I'll give you another example. So Biden seems to be already taking a different approach with China, with Egypt, I noticed, to selling arms to Egypt. Uh, there's a number of international things that Biden is shifting from what Trump did. But I honestly don't feel like I understand the complexities of what happens internationally well enough to really weigh in with any type of authority on what either one of them did. So I, there's some people that I trust uh, locally, Jack uh, Siegel? Jack Siegel's mm-hmm. one, he and his wife. Um, because they've had decades of experience over there. And so there's some people that I can listen to and I feel like they have good handle on it. But generally speaking, I just don't know. And then when I see stories, they're almost always a story that's an initial reaction that immediately moves the discussion right or left. And I, I read those and I think, uh, I just don't know if I can feel confident with this because it seems like, once again, people try to make points with it right away. And I'd like to find that place where I don't want you to make points. I want you to discuss what's the (laughs) boots on the ground reality of what something like this is going to do. I think that that's, yeah, what, what is so, at least for me, what's so frustrating about politics and this, this hope that we all have at this table of like moving forward in some type of unity um, is that it all just seems so mucky all the time and like purposefully mucked up so that us regular people can't understand all the workings of it. So then we just decide to pack it in and not be involved in these mm-hmm. conversations. And yeah, I feel the same way about uh, our, our dealings with other countries. I just think like, man, I barely know like the history of our own country and the nuances that might come with the decisions that are being made here. Uh, how am I going to possibly get to a point where I can have uh, a decent opinion on what's happening in China? Um, but luckily we do have people that, you know, are, are more experienced in that realm and can kind of, share what they know with us. But sometimes, yeah, it seems like even when the well of information isn't poisoned, we're still pumping water into like an old can that we used to have paint thinner in or something. It's like, (laughs) then we're somehow responsible for tainting whatever the original information was that might've been good to begin with. I don't see in our system where nuance is very profitable. (laughs) It just, I, I feel like, you know, having come complex, um, deep conversations where maybe some people on the right are are right about this. And some people on the left are right about that. That's not, doesn't seem to be an appetite and audience for that. And maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, maybe that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. And maybe I'm saying the wrong message. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hope whoever is listening to this wants to find that conversation because I, I mean, I do think there are people who want it, but I just worry that the mass of people have become so inoculated and so sort of addicted to the fast sound bite and the clean answers that having those more complex, tricky conversations, it's just a lack of muscle memory, I think, for some people. Mm. Do you, do you do you hear the smacking of those lips? Uh, that is me. That's because I'm currently drinking the Night Swimmer Stout. It is a Belgian-style stout from Stormcloud Brewing in beautiful Frankfurt, Michigan. Uh, it has an appearance as dark as swimming in Lake Michigan on a moonless night. Uh, the Night Swimmer Stout reveals a light chocolate and roast aroma intertwined with dark fruit flavors. And I made my voice really dark there. 
Uh, one of our one of I feel their like your voice could have been darker, strains, darker even yeah. dark fruits. Okay, well yeah. we're gonna plug you in for that okay. one. Awesome. Um, this is sourced from Belgium and it adds a slightly background fruitiness. Are you guys getting any of those things that I mentioned? Chocolatey was part of it, right? Yeah, I'm getting some chocolatey for mm-hmm. sure. Okay, yeah, it's creamy. Um, I feel like this is like a good beer to drink in the winter. I kind of always go dark, go stouts in the winter time. It just feels a little bit thicker, warmer, a little mm-hmm. cozier. Mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, that's part of Northern Michigan is making that transition seasonally. Mm -hmm. Like let's, let's warm up a little, let's have a stout. And this comes from Storm Cloud, which is actually one of my favorite breweries in Northern Michigan. Okay. And and it should be said, it pairs great with rich cheeses, smoked or barbecued food and chocolate desserts of which we have none of those here. Um, But man, they, they really hit it out of the park with this one. Uh, 7.5% ABV, 34 IBU. I was listening to, I went back and was listening to a podcast that was actually uh, released on the day of president's for, or Biden, Biden's first day in office, uh, Preet Bharara. Do you know him? Yeah. I can't stay tuned with Preet, I think is the name of his podcast. And he had a guest that had just written a book on Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And he had talked about essentially how Biden seems to be like, at the very least, like he might be able to appeal to the people in the center. And there was a really cool quote. It wasn't from the author directly, but he said, politics swings to the extremes. It swings extreme left and it swings extreme right, but it always has to pass through the center. Hmm. And it actually spends twice as much time in the center than it does at the extremes. And that maybe that's where Biden can live is within that. And maybe that's why he's kind of upsetting some some more far left progressives where like, hey, you're not really you know, you don't have your agenda or you're not pushing our agenda in the way that we were hoping you would. It honestly might just have been Joe Biden's job to wrestle this presidency from Trump. And I thought that that was a very valiant thing. And I'm glad that he did so far. Um, and then maybe what comes next is like some of the things that we're talking about. Mm. Like something more progressive yeah. to the, but, it, but yeah. Yeah. But not that it has to be progressive to the left, but just that, um, maybe it's just like a cooling period, like while Biden's in office for these four years. And then we can start to see some real movement after that. And what direction it goes, I don't know. But Hmm. Would that be the equivalent, perhaps, of what, say, George Bush Sr. was? Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. You that might be more. I don't have I was younger when (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of a polite way to say that. Uh, I don't have the same uh, memories of living through his presidency. I was a little bit younger. (laughs) Well, back when I was. No, no, no. You're you're just a little, just a little bit. Um, But from what I know of him and what I remember, he seemed very like boring, but in a good way, like a way that you want someone to be boring. The same Mm. thing about Biden, to be honest, like you don't always need a crazy cartoon character in the White House. Like sometimes it's nice to just have a stable, quiet adult. Yep. No, I I would agree with that. George Sr. was a boring president and I don't mean that as an insult. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that there's, there's value to that. And that's honestly why I felt more comfortable with a Biden presidency than I did a Trump presidency again, because, you know, I just thought at the very least, he's not going to inflame things. I would be very surprised if he was. And so far he hasn't really inflamed anything. And um, I'm just finding a lot of comfort in that. And now I feel like the work that I have to do personally is start to judge him on some of these more like details that maybe I honestly, I I wasn't even able to pay attention to details much during Trump's presidency because I was constantly so worried about his behavior Mm -hmm. um, that I felt like I didn't even have the energy to delve into the like the policies and stuff. 
And so I want to make sure that I'm not doing that same thing with Biden, where I'm so comfortable with his behavior that I'm not diving into the actual policies. That makes sense. Yeah. I've noticed already on my newsfeed. I mean, early on, of course, conservatives were critical of some things he did fairly quickly, but it didn't take more than a week or two for me to start seeing articles from left leaning sources that were calling him out on things that they weren't happy about. And this takes us back to this idea of some people being in the middle. I wonder if there's something to be said for if you can get the both the far right and the far left to be unhappy with where you're going. Maybe that's a sign that you're somewhere in that standard deviation of uh, centrist kind of politicians where obviously you're not going to make all the people happy all the time. What's that old phrase? Some of the people, some of the time, et cetera. But um, I, I did think that was interesting. I wasn't quite sure how the left would experience the Biden presidency. And I've noticed they're they're not reluctant to be critical of him fairly quickly. Mm. I do wonder, I mean, it seems like a lot of the things that he's doing in office, at least the first two weeks, you know, he came pretty hard out of the gate with executive orders, which he said he was going to do. And, which seems to be the new de facto way of getting things done. Precedent has been set. Yes. <laughs> be there honest. has been set, precedent <laughs> set. And it seems like if you've got a really obstructionist Congress, like that's just what you do now, I guess. And the Senate's still getting settled. But, you know, the things that he did initially were popular. I mean, that's part of it. They're in the middle. You know, people, if you look at national polls, people want immigration reform. They definitely want the coronavirus pandemic dealt with. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a, actually a lot of, there's more agreement, I think, in that middle uh, among a lot of Americans, even on contentious issues like abortion rights. I mean, most Americans want abortion to be legal. There's certainly strong contingencies that don't. But if you look at the polling data, I just think there's more agreement than what is represented in this sort of huge divide of the political parties. And maybe Biden will be a president. I certainly think there are Republicans like R Romney or, you know, McCain was like this for me, I think that could do the same thing. You know, they might be on the other side of the fence, but I think you could have a Republican in office like that who's centrist and moderate and probably do a lot of things that were popular with people, including people in the left. Mm -hmm. I, th I think Romney would have been that kind of president. I think so, too. Yeah. 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 Just, you know, boring old Romney. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes that's what you need. Yeah, I. The, the other thing I was listening to on that podcast I mentioned is they were discussing, um, you know, the impeachment and what would the beginning of Biden's presidency look in terms of is he going to be playing it cool or is he going to, uh, in, in a lot of ways, like be out for revenge and and how there very much seems to be this, you know, this um, major divide between people and particularly the particularly the extremes. And that sometimes when you have the opportunity for revenge, you're so worried about that revenge that you're not actually making the progress that you say you want to make. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of I'm kind of pleased in that sense, like the impeachment trial didn't go how I thought it should have in terms of like, do I think justice was served? No. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it did at least point to the fact that there's not just a seeking of like political vengeance, I guess. And we're going to just be like, uh, I think we're actually going to get to work on what we want to accomplish here. Does that? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, Biden is so old. I don't think he has the energy. For <laughs> he, he even remembers George Bush senior's presidency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just, you know, I think Biden, maybe if he was 40 years younger, you know, would come in ready for revenge, but he just, he's, he's seen it all. He's been in politics forever. I think he's going to have a very quiet 
stable administration. That'd be my prediction. What comes after him? I I think he's only going to be a one term president. He is quite old. Yeah, yeah. I think someone like Kamala might run next, you know, and then you could get more into the sort of, again, that swing, the pendulum mm-hmm. swing. You might get a little more progressive. You might get a little more fiery, um, but it'll be interesting. I, I think it was a needed, like you guys said, calm after all the craziness of the last four years to just sort of reset. And then it kind of opens the field, I think, from here of, of where it goes. I'm at the point where I don't think I even want to make predictions about where it could go four years from now. I just <laughs> yeah. feel like we're we're at a place, and maybe this isn't unique to American history because I certainly live in a small sliver of it, but the unpredictability right now of national events is remarkable. Um I'm, Even I'm with sh- the pandemic, yeah, like I just have yeah. no idea when it's going to mm-hmm. end, how it's going to look. Are we going to be able to outrun the variants with the vaccine? Like, it's just all still crazy and up in well, the air. And then all the things connected with that. Um, or what are they going to do with people who can't make their payments on houses? I think that's mm-hmm. been extended again, but will that keep being extended? Because if it's not, then that's a, a future that is going to have a remarkable impact. What's going to happen? How education changes? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen with trade around the world? I mean, already there's been significant changes in the last couple of years, but almost everything you look at, I can envision it going either way. And I have no idea. And I'm I'm not an expert, but even when I read the experts, I think they're wrong about as often as they're right. Mm. Is it a good or a bad? Like, do you, do you guys have any... I mean, I think we're all dealing with low grade anxiety all the time right now, just sort of living in a pandemic and the the uncertainty. But for some people, uncertainty is exciting, you know, and for some other people, it's like "Ah," a little terrifying. I guess, like, how do you guys feel about the next couple of years? Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel scared? Oh, man, that's I think it's something I bounce back and forth. This is actually a lesson I learned probably within the last couple of months, I was having a discussion with my mom actually. And I was talking about uh, the dangers of what I called like premature hope. And so where someone who's not super negatively affected by something that might be happening in the world uh, will quickly speak about hope and be like, ah, oh, it's going to, it's, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. When in reality, like, yeah, you are because it's not affecting you to begin with. So I was talking with her about that and explaining my frustration uh, with people who are maybe exhibiting like premature hope. And she was like, I I get that. Like, I really, really do get that. And she's like, but for me, I have to focus on hope or I become like crippled in anxiety. Mm. And she's like, and I think that I can actually like live in a place of hope while all still seeking that, that change that needs to happen. And I was like, okay, like, I think that that makes sense too, but that's what I bounce between is this thing of like, I almost am withholding hope from myself because a lot of the things I'm passionate about don't directly impact me. Mm. So I'm like withholding this hope so that I'll stay motivated, but then also having to inject a little hope here and there so that I don't just go like, you know, down this anxiety ridden hole all the time. Okay. So I, so I hold these opinions very loosely. Okay. <laughs> I think in terms of politics, Biden will obviously lead from the left, but I don't think he'll be as far left as people think. Mm -hmm. And then if he does make major moves, the Supreme Court is going to balance it from the right, though I don't think they're as far right as people think. So I think in terms of the political aspect, especially where some things are implemented and they get challenged and they're going to go to the Supreme Court, I think we're probably going to, at the end of the day, stay fairly close to the middle because you have that balance. So I'm not actually envisioning some dramatic or drastic change at that level. Hmm. 
I'm thinking more of demographic shifts as a big one, because there really is a great migration of sorts going on. And this is both socially and religiously. And those might be tied together where people are moving and going to the places where they are surrounded by like-minded people. So I think we've talked about this before. The, is it the landslide counties? Is that what they call it in an election where people overwhelmingly go for one mm -hmm. candidate? Mm -hmm. Those are growing all the time because people are migrating to like-minded people. And so when I think of the future, one of the things that concerns me is that I think we are creating genuine pockets of people who are not only different from each other, but hostile toward those who are other. Mm -hmm. And I have really deep concerns about that, whether it's communities or states or even areas of the country. And I that probably concerns me as much as anything when I mm -hmm. look toward the future. Like I said, I, I think with our court system, the way it is that we are generally going to stay in the middle for a while yet. I think the only thing that I ever feel nervous about, and I don't know how realistic it is, but I mean, I feel like I feel like Trump was a stress test for a lot of our democratic norms. And I sometimes worry about one, his, his potential resurgence. I think he is unpopular enough now, at least if you believe pulling data that I don't know that he could ever be president again. He could certainly take up a lot of oxygen in the room by trying to run for some political office or backing certain candidates. He could, he could reach a state position pretty easily. Yeah. yeah. Assuming he's not criminally prosecuted, which is yeah. a big if right yeah. now, because there are a lot of pending court cases. What I worry about, is the emergence of someone like Trump who's smarter. And I don't say that as a cheap shot against Trump. It just, he wasn't that sophisticated politically. More tactical with their- Yeah, yeah. And someone who is truly intelligent politically. I just want to be clear on that. Yeah. Um, who is really manipulative and really knows how to game the system. Um, I, that kind of worries me, a populist candidate who knows how to manipulate the media. and More of a Machiavellian ma Yeah, Yeah, I worry about, because I, I worry that there is an appetite and an audience for that kind of politician. And I think Trump could have potentially been way more damaging if he was more politically savvy. He just was kind of like a an ox in the China shop. You know, he yeah. was sort of a bull in the China shop. He was just sort of blundering around saying what he thought and doing what he did. But someone who was really calculating, I, I think, could be really damaging. And that's the only kind of major fear I have. I think you're right that the courts are good. Like we have, again, those protections and those checks and balances. But man, Trump made me see the vulnerabilities and cracks in those systems in a way that was like, wow, if someone really knew what they were doing here, I'd be I worried about the country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think, go ahead. Yeah. Well, for me too, seeing how the impeachment played out, um, just th there is concerns for me, like what precedent does that set? Because doesn't that kind of leave us with like a almost a month long gap at the end of each president's um, <laughs> time in office where they can just act a fool and do whatever they want. <laughs> act a fool. Is it like, like, like the movie, The Purge? Is yeah. this like the last month of the presidency is like a purge. Just do what you want. Yeah, it <laughs> seems like it. It is at the new norm now to challenge every election mm -hmm. in a way that gets violent. I, I do worry about that. that yeah. Every four years, we're just the worries are popping up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and you yeah, and I have are. had this conversation so many times, Anthony, but, you know, I think, you know, you and I lean a little bit different politically, but we've always had great conversations about that. And one of the things I think we agree on is you have to be careful about the norms you set for one party because yeah. they will be exercised yep. by another party. And that was something, you know, th that I worried about with this whole 
campaign to undermine the election. It, it just was so ironic to me. You know, even here in Michigan, we had so many Republicans who were reelected on the same ballot that Biden mm-hmm. won on. But the legitimacy of their races was to them never called into question. It was just mm-hmm. the presidential race. And that, that seems a little politically expedient to be kind. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Like if you always set uh, a precedent in the, the voters' minds that they're democratic practices can never be trusted and that our system can't be trusted. That does not just harm your opponent in that moment. It harms you, I think, in the long run. And it harms our reputation in the world pretty significantly. I was reading international response to how our election was handled or the aftermath of it. And wow, there's a real disillusionment globally about can you actually expect America to be the presence in the world that it was before Mm. if this kind of thing is happening? So it's not even just us. In terms of our practical impact on on voter confidence, it's our place in the world, I think, is is falling fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. And what would that mean? You know, if America falls and America's never let's be let's look at the history of our country and, and what we're based on, you know, going back to slavery and, and the slaughter of Native Americans. It's not that we've ever been. I think the shining city on the hill in quite the way that we like to think we are. But there we have been, I think, in many many periods of history, a force for good, you know, whether it's World War II, whatever it might be. And so I do think there are parts of America, even if it's aspirational for ourselves, not to mention other countries, the idea of America has always been upheld as something to aspire to. And if you remove that or people become disillusioned with that, what fills the void? You know, if it's if it's a country like China that becomes the number one superpower in the world in the way that they approach freedom, free speech, mm-hmm. how they control their citizens, uniformity, um, kind of stamping out individuality, certainly oppression of certain religious minorities. What does that you know, mean? It's really interesting to think about and a little bit scary that if it's not us, it's going to be someone else. And what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's something that you said, Beth. I should note that the response that I saw internationally, there was a sense of mourning. It wasn't jubilation. Yeah. It, because America has had a presence in the world that, in spite of some terrible things, has done many good things. Mm-hmm. And people have looked to America as a source of inspirational kind of leadership to some degree. And so the response I saw was not gloating, it was generally sadness. Like, yeah. what is happening? This mm-hmm. was great. And now. It doesn't seem as much. It's a little bit to me like, you know, in a religious aspiration, you know, Christianity, whatever it might be. It's like the difference between where you are and what you aspire to. It's not that you always have to be perfect in the ideal. It's the striving towards the ideal, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think. And the bigger the distance between you and the ideal uh, is where something else can come in and fill in the middle. And I think just those images of the insurrection at the Capitol mm-hmm. for so many people were so devastating because it's like, man, we have fallen so far from the ideal. And like, what does this mean for our country? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like the question I'm wrestling with is like, what is America now? Like, where do we go from here? I, that's something that I've wrestled with too, is, is that we have this, you know, by and large, we are the world superpower. And so I always looked at that as like, okay, if we have that box checked, like if that could be a box and we got that checked, we're world superpower, sweet. Let's hold that position. I've always was like, but isn't that then where you have kind of room to improve even beyond? So like, let's improve the lives of the disenfranchised from there because we already checked that box. So let's let's keep keep improving. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to be how 
like America as a whole looks at it. It's like, no, we're just going to maintain this, this world superpower. So now I wonder if say we're, we end up number two on that list after a China or something, is that when we then start focusing on improving? Um, or are we too worried about getting back on top? Are you saying we were so concerned about our status in the world that we overlooked the status of our own yeah. people? Yeah, I think so. Like why, why are we dealing with issues of police brutality um, in America right now. Like to me, that doesn't make sense. Like, I, I feel like we should have already figured that out and we haven't. So what, what that means is that we've had generations of people that have been unwilling to root that out and fix those issues. And so then it keeps being something that's, that's like maybe becoming less common every once in a while, but it's still a major problem. Um, Yet here we are as this world superpower. So I guess it depends like how you look at how you look at your country. Are you okay with just having checked that box? Or are you someone like maybe like me that is like, I would really just like to work on some of these issues at home because they're what impact me and people that I love. Yeah, because when I think about being number one, I don't worry about like America losing that position from some sort of like strength or reputation. I, what I would like to see America be number one or be recognized for it, which I think it has been in the past is because of those ideals, you know, and it is because of this idea that has been so infectious and and prompted the dreams of so many people from around the world, that this is a place you can come and regardless of who you are, you have the potential to, you know, make a life for yourself, pursue happiness, all these kind of, you know, lofty goals that we realize in real life are often much more cynical and difficult and Mm -hmm. challenging than it actually is. But that's like to what you were saying, Taylor, like that's what I would like to see America be number one for again, is that I that dream and people believing in that dream and us as a country working to make that dream actually accessible to people and not just something that they get disillusioned by when they get here. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like it's a it's an ideal that maybe someone across the pond is like, man, U.S. looks like just a dope place to be and pursue your dreams. And then someone that. You know, someone that actually lives here is like, "Ah, it's really not as easy as you think, or it's not like it's not as accepted as what you think. Yeah, it does seem like, don't you think that that's kind of like the the view that we've kind of held is sometimes different than the view we have from people right on our own. We are, by the way, increasingly a dope place to be. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Okay. So I'm thinking back now to when you're in high school and you get your yearbook and it comes out and you get all this most likely to, most likely to, et cetera. So we talk about America being number one or being the world superpower. One of my questions would be, uh, number one in what? Mm-hmm. And, and so do we want to be the number one intimidating country in the world? Do we want to be the number one compelling country in the world? What what do we want to be number one at? And, and then why? And then if we are number one in something, what are we doing with that kind of power? Because it seems to me to pursue that status or that power simply for the sake of the power or the status is going to be counterproductive and probably terrible. If the goal is power, um, that never ends well if that's your end goal. But if your goal is to be powerful at something or good at something because you have another kind of goal you want to accomplish with it. Like if you're the policeman who has law enforcement power because you want to protect the innocent and save little children and take cats out of trees and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. You've pursued power for a cause that's greater than the power being pursued. And I I wonder if maybe it's time for some reckoning in the United States to go, okay, we got the power, like you pointed out. What are we doing? What's the plan? Mm -hmm. What are we sowing in the world with what we have? 
Yeah, that's what I was trying to say, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the the fact that you said reckoning as you were talking, I was just thinking like I I think the main thing America has to do or or will need to the hurdle need to clear going forward is there has to be some true reckoning as a country with our racial history. I just, I think it's driving so much of everything that we're seeing in politics, in power disparities, obviously Black Lives Matter and police brutality are more uh, overt examples of this. But I don't feel like we've ever really reconciled with the fact, I know we haven't, because you can see the sort of resistance to any kind of racial bias <laughs> training or curriculum that wants to highlight the honest history of our country. There's a big, strong narrative that like, we can't penalize for people for being white or make them think that they're bad people for being white. And it's just this resistance to try to deal with the nation's history. And if you compare it to a place like Germany, you know, where everywhere there are reminders of the Holocaust mm -hmm. and they, as a country, I mean, I don't think that they necessarily heal from that. I don't know how long it takes to heal from something as horrible as the Holocaust, but they certainly have not hidden it or buried it. They have very strict laws about talking about the Holocaust. The camps are still there. And I just feel like, you know, even now, like we're so resistant to take down a Confederate statue. You know, it's it, there's so many signs in our country that we have in no way maturely dealt or reckoned with our history of slavery and oppression of minority people. And that is ironically in direct contrast to what the dream is, which is this mm -hmm. is democracy that's open to all. We Lady Liberty stands there and she welcomes the poor and the immigrants mm -hmm. and the wretched to her shores. We just know that that's not really the reality for so many people. Mm -hmm. I was reading a book recently that um, on the Native American history here in the United States and that what has happened to that particular people group. And it was discussing, for one, presidents in our history that we often put on a pedestal. Uh, and if if we'd realize what they actually engendered with the Native American population, we'd be appalled. And I was as I read it. But one of the stats that stood out to me was that if you look at the Native American population, when the landmass of what's now the United States began to be populated with Europeans, and then you fast forward a couple hundred years, it was functionally genocidal. And they were pointing out statistically, uh, if you would look around the world and you go, whoa, they dropped from that to that. They said it. it is, and I think they're right, functionally genocidal. Yeah. And you just don't hear that discussion. It's, and I agree with you, Beth, that if we don't look that in the face and are able to swallow hard and go, that is part of our history. And granted, I didn't contribute to it directly. I get that. So there's not a sense in which I feel guilty for what my ancestors did. But to not acknowledge what my ancestors did seems like I, I don't know how you go forward without going, no, this is who we were. Mm -hmm. We'll never understand who we are until we know who we were. We know that in our personal lives. Why wouldn't that be true of our corporate lives? And yeah. the systems in still in place. So it's like, you know, even if you and I haven't gone around enslaving people in our current yeah. lives, like there are still so many systems that we benefit from in ways tangible and intangible that there's just so many conversations, I think, that have to be had about that. Okay. So I had a fascinating conversation with a friend of mine recently. For those who don't know, I grew up Mennonite. And a friend of mine wrote an article, he's researching Mennonite history, and he wrote about actually one of my wife's uh, relatives, one of my wife's ancestors. It's a famous story of this guy named Jacob, Jacob Hostetler, who most of his family was killed by a bunch of Native Americans. He and his son were taken captive for years and then released. Hmm. And he was often held up as kind of this icon because they were passive and non-resistant. They never fired a shot. They just accepted it. 
But this guy who I know, um, he grew up in the same community I did. He was writing about this and he said, okay, we have to wrestle with something here. They were on stolen land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They, they were, they may not have been consciously aware of being complicit in something, but they absolutely were in land that was stolen and taken. And so I was messaging with him a little bit because I said, okay, I feel like coming to grips with that would be a little different if we would know that they absolutely knew that and went, oh, well, okay, that's a complicity that seems fairly direct. But what if they had no idea mm -hmm. and Farmer Bob sells them land and they're like, awesome, I've got a land. And then they discover, well, they, just, they discover what they discovered. And his response was, Yes, but Mennonites came from persecution. They know what it was like to have these things happen. Hmm. And he said, it's hard for me to believe they would not have at least, if they weren't aware, they would probably have had to actively been unaware hmm. to not see what was happening because they had been through it. Thought, ooh, okay, I've, I've always felt pretty good about, okay, hmm. my, <laughs> my lines are probably pretty pristine. Yeah. Uh, but he's going, actually, this probably plays out in ways that direct us more than we realize. And I have a feeling my old community is probably coming up on some reckoning of things that they thought for a long time we probably don't have to deal with. And it's actually challenging me to go, all right, are there things now where I am not wanting to know ways in which I might be perpetrating some type of injustice, even if I didn't know about it? And maybe I even have to research hard, but man, I don't, I don't want people three generations from now looking back and going, you know, Anthony, he seemed like a really nice guy at the time. Right. <laughs> and so it's actually challenged me, not that I'm overwhelmed with guilt or something like that, but it's challenged me to, to try to think more carefully about what, what, it, what would it look like in my life if I was contributing to something that is really terrible and it's there for me to see, and I'm just not seeing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to figure out what wisdom looks like to pursue that, not in a way where I'm, I'm trying to find, you know, something terrible behind everything I do, but I do want to have an honest view of the world. Yeah. Did that makes sense at all. It did, yeah. yeah. It, I wonder this about like more progressive movements. So if you're going to label like me a progressive because I care about racial justice, um, my frustration with that stems from like, no, I really just feel like I'm fighting for something that should have already been fought for like this shouldn't have fallen to me mm -hmm. should have already been taken care of and it is because of that i think lack of reckoning like it's embedded in so much of our of our country i'm learning all about that i'm reading books about yankeedom and the differences between yankeedom and the antebellum or deep south and it's like some of the uh progression of yankeedom wasn't because they had these just noble um, views against enslaving other humans. It was because they actually thought that it made more sense not to include that um, in terms of their expansion. Like they didn't need that to be a, a part of their of their culture. So it was easier to expand without that, as opposed to just being like, and maybe there was aspects of it, but like, ah, that's an evil thing. I'm not going to implement that in my culture, as opposed to the deep South where it was really common. You might know a little bit more about that, Anthony. Yeah, there's a book we can talk about later that <laughs> I read that was fascinating. Well, yeah. that's one of the things I hope we can do with the podcast is just have some of those conversations. Because, you know, I think overall, at least for me, my life is fairly comfortable. You know, even during the pandemic, I'm safe, I'm healthy, uh, I have employment. And so... 
the most challenging thing that can come out of some of that reckoning is me feeling uncomfortable. And I'm looking at the sign mm -hmm. behind your head, <laughs> Taylor, that says discomfort leads to growth. And that's what I, those are the kind of conversations I, I like to have. And I think we have to have both as individuals and as a country. No, that's a great point, Beth. I'm with you. I would like to be made appropriately uncomfortable. I want to be uncomfortable where I shouldn't be. I don't want to go searching for uncomfortableness where there is none. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I ought to be, I want to know it. And I couldn't end it any better. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in to episode one of breaking the surface. This was a lot of fun. Let's do this. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Sounds great. All right.